We continue this morning in our study of the book of Exodus. And I want to speak to you from my heart before we look at the word today. I believe that our text this morning will address a very significant issue. An issue that is plaguing the American Christian. It is a heart condition. And I pray this morning that we do the text justice because I believe that if we will heed the text, learn from the text, it will help us in our Christian walk with the Lord. The heart condition that we will discover this morning in our text is a heart condition that leads to one of the most offensive abominations before God. And that offensive is idolatry. And many in America feel that idolatry is not a problem with the American Christian. It is more of a problem than you can ever imagine with the American Christian. And we as Americans don't understand how offensive idolatry actually is to God. In fact, if there was any subject that I would ever want to write upon, it would be the effects of idolatry on the American Christian. But this morning I will tell you that we find that the idolatry doesn't begin uh, overnight in the mind and the hearts of an individual. It starts with a heart condition that I believe is demonstrated for us within our text. And so as we begin this morning, let us pray right now and ask God to speak to our hearts through His Word and bring to our attention that which He desires to bring. Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your word. And Father, as we get to this important passage of Scripture, this one event that captures only seven verses of the book of Exodus left such a lasting impression that it's repeated over and over and over again in the Bible and other places by other writers. The children of Israel demonstrated something at this moment that your spirit that you desire to have us be aware of and bring to our attention. And as Paul will articulate for us that this heart condition led to the idolatrous heart of the nation of Israel. Father, idolatry before you is a great offense. We are keen on many of the other sins and we like to proclaim them and to call them out, but it's amazing how silent we are about idolatry. So, Father, I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts as a church, as an individual, that our hearts might be right before you. That we wouldn't allow anything to become an idol within our minds and within our hearts. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin in Exodus 17 as we are working our way through the book of Exodus to chapter 20 in a series that we've entitled 10, and obviously we are referring to the Ten Commandments. But before we dove into the Ten Commandments, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20 indicate to us very clearly that there was a story that preceded the giving of the Ten Commandments. There was an account, a historical account, that preceded the giving of the Ten Commandments, that the individual needed to understand and to be aware of before they could truly appreciate why God gave the Ten Commandments to His people. And in so doing, we now find ourselves in chapter 17. We are almost there. 
But as we get closer to the Ten Commandments, as we walk with the children of Israel through the wilderness, every step making our way closer to Mount Sinai, we discover that there is one issue and incident after another, one circumstance that God has allowed into the life of the children of Israel to show them who He is, to help them fully believe on Him, demonstrate to them His character, and to show them their own heart. David said to us very clearly, that the heart, our hearts are desperately wicked, who can know them? And oftentimes what God needs to do is to bring us into very trying circumstances in life to show us what is in our own hearts. As we react to those adverse circumstances, it only demonstrates what's in our own hearts as individuals. And sometimes it can be shocking. Sometimes we believe that we are closer or more mature to God than we actually are, and then within this circumstance it only demonstrates that truth by the manner in which we react to it. God knows our hearts. It isn't a mystery to Him. He doesn't allow these things to show or to demonstrate to Himself what is in our hearts. He knows our hearts. But how often we don't know our own hearts. How often we don't understand where our hearts are at before God. And often I don't think we even consider it today. But the children of Israel continuously failed the different tests that the Lord had brought about within their lives to demonstrate who He is, to demonstrate His power, to demonstrate His faithfulness to His promises. And the children of Israel continued to tempt the Lord God, to test Him. In chapter 16 last week, we saw that the children of Israel complained towards the Lord five times. Today, Moses uses a different word to demonstrate or to describe the actions of the children of Israel. He says that they contended with him. It had progressed. It had gone one step further. And as a result, they had moved to a place that their complaining had turned to contending. And in that contending, they actually crossed this line And that line is now that their contending and their complaining has turned into tempting the Lord God. This was such a significant event. As I said earlier, it is mentioned in several places within the Bible as a memorial, as a reminder to all of us what had occurred there in the wilderness. Now this is serious, guys. I really want to establish that this morning. Because God is as equally concerned about your personal heart's condition today as He was for the children of Israel back then. Today we don't even consider often our own heart condition. We don't cry out like the psalmist did, Examine me, O Lord. But often as Christians, we find ourselves in trials and tribulations, and it's within those things that we begin to cry out to God with comments such as, Oh, why, God? Oh, why have you allowed such a thing to happen? Or, God, how could you? How could you bring this upon me? 
Or God, what is the point to all of this? Or God, why won't you answer me now, God? Now I need you to answer me, not later. Now those are all legitimate questions. And God never minds a legitimate question. A legitimate heart cry. But within those, they can form and progress to a position of a problematic nature. When they move to the point that they become, they move from a sincere question to God to the place that an individual is tempting and testing God. That's a problem. Where we are actually saying, and what we are actually doing is questioning the character of God itself. Where we're questioning the nature of God. We're questioning the fairness of God. We're questioning the goodness of God. We're questioning the love of God in a provoking manner. Today, in American Christianity, this is what I see. That the moment things get tough for the believer is the moment that they often fold like a cheap suit. I don't know if they use that expression anymore, but I thought I'd bring it back to popular usage. And as a result, the Christians are so weak in their walk with the Lord, they're so weak in their faith, that the moment any kind of adversity comes about, they just simply crumble under the weight of it. And they cry out to God in such a way, and I don't even think that they are aware of the possibility of them moving into a place in which they are tempting God. But that's exactly what happened. And what we are going to discover is that this heart condition was the underlying reason for the children of Israel moving so quickly to idolatry. Think of it this way, if I may put it in layman's terms. Well, God, if you're not going to do it for me, what I want done, then I'm going to find someone or something else to do for me what I want to be done. And so often, we as Christians today are so easily moved away from our trust and faith in the Lord by overwhelming circumstances that we abandon God and are so willing to adopt something else in this world that may support us at that moment. Or worse yet, we take things into our own hands and we try to make things better only to discover we've made it even worse. Or using it as a justification to abandon all else that God would say and move away from Him and walk with an attitude or a mindset that I trusted God and bad things happened and I don't know why they happened in my life. And they move and they begin to place their attention and affections on other things. For we will discover that Paul made this link. Paul said that the idolatry that the children of Israel were so rampantly engaged and didn't just begin overnight. It started with their hard attitude. It started right here. It started at this moment. And as a result, that's what we are going to be looking at today. And this contending with Moses, 
this tempting of God starts with the element of confusion. They were confused. And in that confusion, they allowed themselves to think things and move to false conclusions, which led them to contend, number two, with Moses. And how does God respond? Number three, he responds with a command. So this morning we begin in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped in Rephim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Something has occurred. The children of Israel are obviously confused by the circumstances in which they find themselves within. And it's a circumstance that I think all of us can identify with. Today, many Christians are under the misconception that if I submit myself to the perfect will of God, all should go pretty easy for me in life. Maybe you have that mindset. If I submit myself to the perfect will of God, all should go pretty easy for me in life. And many have discovered that once you do submit yourself to the perfect will of God, just the opposite of true. Things seem to get much more difficult. I think that we have sold Christians in America a bill of goods by telling them that if you walk with the Lord and you are in His perfect will, everything shall be, um, you know, roses and dandelions and dandelions. You want dandelions? Those are weeds, you know. Uh, What the heck? We don't want dandelions, you know. But everything will be perfect, everything will go smoothly, and they won't have any true type of adversity. The Bible never teaches that. Jesus was in the perfect will of God. It wasn't a bed of roses for him, was it? Paul was in the perfect will of God. It certainly was not a bed of roses for him either. There were great difficulties that these men experienced in their lives being in the perfect will of God. So right away, all I want to do is tell you that if you have the expectation that being in the perfect will of God is going to uh, give you a clean, smooth ride through life, you are grossly mistaken. So number one, I want to eliminate that false expectation and just remind you that it is possible to have difficulties. In fact, it is very probable that you will have great difficulties as you choose to sell yourself out for God, to live full on for Him, and to walk with Him in His perfect will for your life. Yes, I believe God has a will for your life. And that will has been constructed from the foundations of the world. Your place within the body of Christ, what God would have you to do. And as we spend time with Him each and every day in our morning devotions and our time at the evening when we spend in the Word possibly, when we cry out to Him in prayer in our daily uh, life with Him, it is at that moment that the will of God finds us 
I am not a proponent that we have to discover God's will. I believe that if we position ourselves before God properly as a living sacrifice, a blank check saying, Lord, take me, God's will will find you. And as a result, many may think that you are going to experience a smooth ride. That isn't the case. That isn't the case. Often there's great difficulties. The children of Israel have come to a place that they expected to find water, but there was no water there. Now understand, during the day they've been following a pillar of cloud, God. At night that pillar turned into a pillar of fire. So there was no ambiguity to where they were going. The pillar turned right, they turned right. The pillar turned left, they turned left. And this is where God had led them. Now, when they moved through the wilderness, you will discover that they went from one oasis after another because water was a great need, especially for the number of people that were in the caravan from Egypt. But this time, like the waters of myrrh, they discovered water at that place, but it was bitter and God made it sweet. Then they came to the wilderness of sin in uh, chapter 16. They had no food. God provided manna and quail for them. But now they are at Remethin. And as a result, they expected this oasis to have water, but they discovered that there was no water there. Their expectations had been dashed. They had been traveling for quite a ways now and appearing to forget everything that they have seen God do up until that moment, they begin to contend with Moses. Some of your Bible translations have the word quarrel, and I don't think that's a sufficient English translation. Yes, that's what the word means in the Hebrew, but there's another element that I'll show you in a moment within that Hebrew word that describes uh, the contention between the people and Moses. But they began to contend with Moses. This is beyond complaining. The word complaining is found in the chapter previously. Now they are contending with Moses. And Moses right away discovers and asks them, point blank, why do you tempt the Lord? Verse 2. They had crossed a line. Moses knew that they had crossed that line. Something has occurred here that is going to leave such a lasting impression that it's, that it's mentioned over and over in the Bible, this event, as they contended with the Lord. Their confusion is not only due to f- expectations not being met, thinking that everything was going to be smooth because they were following God, not knowing that God was allowing these trials to show them what's in their own hearts, to help them develop their faith in God, to show him his nature, his character, and the manner in which he responds to this, these difficulties. They didn't expect that. They expected to find water here. They did not find water here. And this is the last stop before they finally reach Mount Sinai. So they had been going a long distance. I don't know about you, but any road trip that I've ever taken, it's right about that three-quarters of the way that you start getting fatigued. You're driving wherever it may be, Florida or wherever it is, cross country. You're pretty good for the first three quarters, but that last quarter of the leg seems like an eternity. You're just a little fatigued at that moment from the long distance. I can't even imagine what it would look like caravanning with these millions of people 
and Moses there being responsible for what is about to occur, they contend with him first. But in actuality, their contention with him was an outward manifestation of the fact that they were actually tempting the Lord. They didn't learn from their past experiences. The parting of the Red Sea, I guess, wasn't enough. The sparing of judgment in Egypt, I guess, wasn't enough. The the bitter waters turned sweet in Exodus 15 by the tree wasn't enough. The manna and the quail wasn't enough. They still were not fully convinced, apparently, that God was going to see them through. And so they began to tempt the Lord. But also notice that they were looking at everything from their perspective. If we could just allow ourselves in those moments that our circumstances seem absolutely overwhelming and surmountable, that we just can't seem to get over them, I wish we could take a step back objectively and say, God, this is what it looks like to me. But what does it look like to you, God? What do these problems look like to you? What do these circumstances look like to you? And then ask yourself, God, what are you trying to do in my life in and through these circumstances? Great questions that I think if we could stop ourselves from running to the emotional conclusion and allow God to give that God, God that moment of pause in our life that we just stop for a moment and say, God, what? What are you trying to do? I think we would be so much better off. But they couldn't do that. Their perspective, they were frustrated. Their emotions got the best of them. They were not thinking clearly. As you will discover in our next portion of this text, they are already thinking and revising the history from Egypt once again. It would have been better if we would have just stayed there, etc. They weren't thinking clearly. And yet, in the midst of it, they say something to Moses that I think is absolutely amazing. Moses, give us water. That's interesting. I don't know how Moses had the ability to give two, you know, four million people water. Think about that for a moment. Could you, you know, I've been asked to do some pretty incredible things that were way beyond my abilities, but can you imagine Moses being approached by these people? Give us water. Yeah, I'll get right on that. And yet, they had enough inclination to ask the question give us water. And so Moses responds accordingly by crying out to God. One commentator wrote this. As they moved towards Mount Sinai, the people of Israel were still being led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But the Lord was still directing Israel into difficult and trying situations in order to prove his power and to build their faith and character. After all, life's journey involves much more than merely reaching a destination. If we aren't growing in faith, in the knowledge of God, and in the godly character ourselves, we are wasting our opportunities. As he went on, this commentator then went on to say, Every difficulty God permits us to encounter will become either a test that can make us better, or a temptation that can make us worse. And it's our own attitude that determines which it will be. If in unbelief we start complaining and blaming God, then temptation will trap us and rob us of an opportunity to grow spiritually. But if we trust God and let Him have His way, the trial will work 
for us, not against us, and help us grow in grace. So their confusion led to their contention, and they make that contention known to Moses. Verse 3. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Little dramatic. Oh my goodness. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. It's incredible how these individuals like us allow our felt needs to lead us to some irrational conclusions. The moment we get the least bit uncomfortable is the moment that we draw such ridiculous conclusions concerning God towards us and the purpose of our being in these difficult times. So Moses cried out to the Lord and saying, What shall I do with these people? Good question. They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The people testing God. Tempting God, provoking God. As one wrote, he said, When we have a problem, it's much easier to blame someone else than to think through the problem carefully and spiritually. In this situation, Israel could have thought, why are we in a desert? It's not a surprise there isn't much water here. We need to look to God to meet this need. Instead, they blamed Moses and did nothing to help the problem. I don't know about you, but one thing we have done in our culture here in this country is perfected the blame game. We've perfected it. It's always someone else's fault for the situation that we are currently in. Even if we have brought those circumstances upon ourselves because we personally have not been diligent to do what is right, we still want to blame someone else for something that we have done. And here, the illusion is is that they're blaming Moses. They're blaming God. How many times have you heard someone say to you, in a moment of frustration, in a moment of emotionalism, look at what God has done. Look at what he... And blaming him. Wait. Whoa. Hold on a second. Bring the horses back, pal. What are you talking about? God is working in us because he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And the only way he sometimes can work in us to shape us into the form of Christ, to make us look more like Christ in our actions, deeds, and words, is by bringing about difficult situations that our faith in him would be expanded. That's what we are looking to accomplish. But the moment that we get into trials, we're often saying, Lord, just take this trial from me. I want you to change your prayer. 
and say, Lord, see me through this trial and your perfect work be done in my life because I don't want to go through this again. They tested the Lord. The word contend, as I had stated, means more than just argue or quarrel. It has legal connotations to it. So it's they contended with him. In their quarreling, in their argument, they were making a case for themselves against Moses and against God to justify how they personally feel and to show they themselves correct in their situation. They have fully convinced themselves that they are right for doing what they're doing. They're making a case against Moses. They're making a case against God. They are uh, laying it out before Moses in this contentious manner. Oh, they thought it through. And that thinking it through has justified it in their own mind. Now they think they're right in what they do. And as a result, they move to the place where they tempt God or test God. And what does it mean to do so? To put to the test in order to ascertain the nature of something, including imperfections, faults, and qualities. So they're tempting God. Is them provoking God to act in a manner of failure, faults, and other imperfections. They're looking to show uh, God's deficiencies within their tempting. That's exactly what they're doing here. They're calling into question the whole entire nature and person of God by complaining in the manner that they are. Do you see how that can become offensive to God when His creation calls Him into question? That's a problem. And yet we do it so freely. We are so quick to think that we, in our audacity, can judge God. To determine that we know better than He does for, our, for ourselves and about ourselves. In fact, this is so appalling that the devil actually tried to bring Jesus into this sin. By taking Jesus to the highest point of the temple, he then encouraged Jesus to step off the temple, saying to him, and then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, if you really who you say you are, questioning his nature, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in his hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to them, It is written again, You shall not test the Lord your God. Quoting Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I believe, verse 16, Moses actually memorializes this phrase so the children of Israel don't repeat this sin again, but they did over and over again. Do not allow your circumstances to test the Lord. Instead, trust Him. Trust Him during those things. Let your heart attitude be that of David's when he said, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. 
He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is a refuge for us. Amen. Let that be your heart attitude. So Moses, under the weight of contention, does what we should do. Cries out to God. God, this is the circumstances that I now face. I don't know what to do for your people. What they ask of me is beyond my personal capabilities. Lord, what shall I do? They're about to stone me. He cries out to God, and God answers his cry. Go and stand before the rock and take the staff with you that you use to strike the Nile and go before the rock and strike the rock. Strike the rock. And from that rock came forth water. God in his infinite grace doesn't condone what the people have done but responds to them in kindness and in love and provides their needs because he said he would beforehand that he would preserve his people to see his people to the land in which he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was only at the moment when they didn't trust him enough to enter into that land that he pronounced judgment upon them and had them wander for 40 years, the first generation dying off and the second generation coming to bear and then allowing that generation under the leadership of Joshua into the promised land. I wish I could tell you that they learned from their mistake. But we're going to learn very quickly that they did not. In verse 7, So the Lord, so he called, that is Moses, the name of the place, Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And I want you to look at that last question. Because often that's what we wrestle with in our moments of difficulty, of great trial, great tribulation. Is the Lord with us or not? And in that moment that we ask that question, we often and always usually seem to forget everything that the Lord has done in our lives up until that moment. We seem to allow ourselves to fester in the confusion of the circumstances rather than to trust God at that moment. It seems as if we are moved too quickly to that position of uh, vulnerability instead of just waiting on God and trusting God. We allow, like Peter, to get our eyes off of the Lord onto the waves of the circumstances and begin to sink within those waves. And just like Jesus, here God provides water for them. Just like Jesus, when Peter began to sink, grabbed him from the depths of that despair and pulled him above the waters. That's what we need to do. Keep our eyes on God during those times. Let him carry us through those circumstances. Not relying on ourselves, but relying on him. Trusting him every step of the way for everything that he is about to do. Knowing that he's showing us our own heart. That we may be right before him. Confess any failures and faults that are on our behalf. And then trust him. And then trust him with everything that we have. 
This became such an incident that in Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him at Massah. Or in Deuteronomy 9.22, at Massah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Or in Deuteronomy 33.8, your Holy One in whom you tested at Massah with, uh, and with whom you contend with at Meribah. They needed to remember their failure here at this moment. And God asks him not to do it again. And yet, by the second generation in Numbers chapter 20, the same thing happens all over again. Once again, they're crying out. You can read it for yourself, verses 1 through 13. Crying out for water. Doubting God. Going through the whole ordeal again. This is the second generation adopting the bad habits of their parents. Because it's always the parents' fault. Don't you know that? Isn't that what we're told? We're never responsible for ourselves. And as a result, this time... God simply instructs Moses to go and speak to the rock. Moses, in his frustration, first rebukes the people, and then he goes and strikes the rock twice. And you say, well, that's understandable. Moses has had to deal with them for 40 years in the wilderness. I can understand why his frustrations got the best of him. It's understandable. Well, actually, it wasn't. Because God was so displeased by, uh, at Moses' reaction that Moses was actually kept from entering into the promised land due to this misrepresentation of God. See, Moses was mad. Moses was frustrated. Moses did something that God had not asked him to do and misrepresented God before the people. He wasn't reflecting God's heart. He presumptuously proceeded to demonstrate God's wrath when God's wrath was not to be demonstrated at that moment. And it kept Moses from entering into the promised land of God. Hey, it's an important thing to know that you're repping God. The moment you say you're a Christian, all eyes are on you. What conclusions are people coming to by your life in which you live? As one has stated, if you were arrested for being a Christian, could they bring you before a court of law and witnesses one right after another testify of your Christianity in simply the works in which you do to describe yourself as a Christian? But as I had said from the beginning of our time together this morning, let us turn and close in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because Paul draws upon this event and uses it as an example for the readers there at Corinth. In a passage that is often, I believe, misinterpreted and misapplied. Paul the Apostle in chapter 9, just to give you a little taste of what's going on here, is writing to them about his running the race to win, instructing us to do all that we should do and can do to run the race, that is, to run this life as one who runs to win. Concerned about his disqualification. And then after leaving that thought, he moves into chapter 10 where he begins to address and to remind them of Old Testament examples of Moses and his relationship with the children of Israel. In verses 1 and 4, 
through 4. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers under the cloud all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, the cloud, and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now there is some debate over what Paul is actually saying here. But he equates the manna, and he equates the drink, this water that God provided through these rocks, as spiritual which I believe simply determined the fact that they were miraculous in nature. Both the manna and the water were provided by miraculous means. But he goes on to say that the rock was Christ, making the rock some type of typology, some type of uh, Old Testament uh, Christology, you know, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And all kinds of conclusions have been drawn from that typology. That Jesus needed to be struck once, and that represented the cross. And then to simply approach Jesus by faith through confession, speaking to the rock, in both cases, the Spirit was given. Okay, but we don't have enough to substantiate. That's a good parallel. Some believe that there is a parallel here to the Last Supper, that the spiritual food and drink are in um, parallel with that of the communion elements, the wine and the wafers, the bread that was held and broke by Jesus at the Last Supper, possibly. But Paul addresses that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. Some believe that Paul here is referring to the fact that the, those in Corinth believed that in hyper-sacramentalism and that because they were baptized and because they partake in communion, they are exempt and immune from all kinds of temptations. That's interesting because that does seem to fit better here, but it doesn't explain everything. I share all, with, all of those with you because commentators and scholars uh, throughout the centuries have come to those conclusions and you might want to think on those yourself. But what is Paul actually saying here? There is no doubt that the water and the bread, the manna, was provided by spiritual means. God did it miraculously. And there does seem to be, in the legendary um, minds of a Jewish person, they believed that because their wilderness wanderings began with a rock being struck and ended with a rock being struck, that a rock followed them throughout the wilderness. Some believe that, that an actual rock followed the children of Israel, and whenever water was needed, they struck that rock. Because of what it says here. Or did Moses simply find a rock as they were moving and each time that water was needed, he struck the rock? Now we only have two occasions in the scriptures that indicate that he did such a thing and that we do have the legend of a rock following them. But I believe what Paul was saying here is that he wanted them to know that even though all of the children of Israel experienced such things, And that Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that it wasn't simply a rock that brought forth this water. It was a pre-existent Christ that was with the children of Israel even back at that time. He then goes on immediately to warn them about a condition that the children of Israel fell into. Look at verse 5 with me. But most of them, God was not well pleased 
for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And verse 7, And do not become idolaters, as it were with some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality. Any type of sexual contact previous to marriage is sexual immorality and sin before our holy God. As some of them did in the one day 23,000 fell. Now look at verse 9, closely tying into our passage. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Specifically talking about those who intermarried and then were killed off by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as what? As examples. That they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore let him who thinks stands, take heed lest he falls. No temptation overtakes you except such as common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to stand and bear it. And then he goes right into, therefore, concluding what he's about to say, my beloved, flee from what? Idolatry. In your Bibles, you have little places called perecopies. Here's your word for the day. It's these little things right here. I show you these because often, often we read to the perecope. And we do not read the text through, you know, if these little things were in novels in which we read, we would be annoyed by them, wouldn't we? Because we want to read the thought through. We want to get the whole concept in which Paul is saying here. And though you can take that typology of Christ in the rock and it following them to certain conclusions, let us not miss what he's exactly saying here. That heart attitude of the children of Israel that manifested itself in tempting God is the foundation, the bedrock for them moving away from the one true God into idolatry. This is it. If you're starting to see these signs, these symptoms, watch out. They were written for our example. Be careful because easily you can be moved to a place of idolatry and where God judged them for such a thing. That makes sense to me. That fits within the context of the passage. He starts off with being not wanting to be disqualified. Good thing. We don't want to be disqualified from the race, right? And then he moves into ending it with, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's how you maintain a contextual base for a text, reading before and after it and keeping it in its thought. Understand, this is a letter. This was to be brought and to be read before them, that they may learn from these things as an example. So let these things be an example. If you find yourself today in a place where you're questioning, is the Lord with me or not? Be careful. That's what I say to you today. Be careful. Do not allow your emotions to run with the banner of that displeasure. 
Because as you run and as you move, you're going to move away from God. It's the one who trusts the Lord at that time. The one who falls at his feet and says, Lord, I can do nothing at this moment. It's the moment that his hands come underneath us, stable us, and sustain us through that. And even if we do proceed into those symptoms, the grace of God often turns us back. As he provided water, as he lifted Peter out of the water, I'm reminded that the grace of God always brings us back to God. And we should learn from these things. As an individual, as a church, let us be careful. Let us remember that the moment that Moses struck the rock, the grace of God was demonstrated once again for us. Let us not tempt the Lord. Let us not test Him. Let us trust Him. Let us not be overwhelmed by our circumstances. Don't let our circumstances get us to the point where we're questioning the goodness of God, for it is that God who will see you through those circumstances to demonstrate to you that He was good all the time, before, during, and after. That is our God. I leave you with this. On the map of our lives, how many places ought to be named testing and quarreling? Because on the way we've complained about our circumstances and failed to trust God. It's one thing to sit comfortably in church and sing, All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask besides? And quite something else to be confronted with distress and disappointment and meekly say, Not my will, but thine be done. Corey Temboom used to say, Don't bother to give God instructions. Just simply report for duty.